All right. Well, hello, everyone. This is Mike Grandinetti with the next episode of our Disruptive Innovation Podcast. I'm extremely excited today to be sitting here with Karen Reuter. Karen is a senior executive with Reebok, and she's going to describe a little bit about her role and, and her title. But what I want to start off with is, you know, this podcast is about innovation in any domain, in any field. Innovation around sustainability is a vitally important issue at our time today. And very few industries seem to have been so aggressive in attacking sustainability at scale, like the athletic shoe and the athleisure and athletic apparel industry. There's been a tremendous amount of uh, investment and new products being brought to market. So we're going to spend some time talking about a very new plant-based shoe from Reebok. That'll be the core of what we do. But before we do that, we're going to want to spend some time getting to know Karen. So Karen, if you'd be so kind, just share with our listeners uh, your title and the role that you play at Reebok. Sure, Mike. Um, At Reebok, I'm the VP of Creative Direction and Future. So I'm leading design, the look and feel of the brand across every touch point from product and packaging to retail, digital, marketing communications, really um, connecting us holistically as a brand, making sure that we're relevant to our consumers, authentic to our legacy, and um, unique and distinct. Great. So how long have you been with Reebok? I joined Reebok about 19 months ago. I joined in uh, mid-2018. Okay. So let's go back to the beginning, because one of the more important uh, words in the title is design. And so I want you to take me back to that point when a much younger Karen was making a decision to study industrial design. What, what was it about design that drew your interest, that captivated you? And you know, why did you then choose to go pursue that degree at Purdue, which is a, a very well-regarded engineering school? Yeah. So, um, you know, I grew up in Hammond, Indiana, which is in the northwest corner of Indiana, right the south side of Chicago, uh, an area called the region. And going to Purdue was always a dream of mine. And, you know, I was more artistic than I was engineering oriented and had really um, decided uh, that architecture was uh, something that I wanted wanted to study. you know, partner that with an absolute love of cars from as long as I can remember. I I remember sitting in the back seat of my dad's Oldsmobile, uh, trying to recognize the year and the make of every automobile that I could. So, I love it. <laughs> yeah, I'm still an yeah. absolute car fanatic. Um, so I, I went down to Purdue and I started uh, my major in architectural technology. And in my sophomore year um, in my drawing class, a professor uh, had said to me, you know, most people in the class, Karen, they're drawing still lifes and trees and flowers. And, you know, you're drawing hair dryers and shampoo bottles and, <laughs> <laughs> and coffee makers, you yeah. know. Um, and, uh, he said, have you ever thought about studying industrial design? Interesting. And I said, what's that? And he said, well, it's like an architect for product. And I still remember that moment. He, he was professor Peter Miller. I can remember exactly where I was standing 
And um, he said, well, it, and I said to him, you can be that. <laughs> I love that. And I ran. I ran with my portfolio to the building where the industrial design department was. And um, I've never looked back. I love it. So as a professor, right, one of the great joys of being a professor is the ability to positively impact the lives of my students. And, <laughs> and so here you are, this incredible epiphany where someone is willing enough to, you know, know you and observe you and share with you an observation that literally has changed your life. Right? Absolutely. What a beautiful moment. And, and um, you know, what a remarkable gift that he gave you and gave the world by, you know, allowing those talents to flourish. So what a wonderful story. Thank you. So you, you know, so you were at Purdue and you've, you've discovered, and I love his explanation. It's just so, yeah. it's so succinct. Architecture for products. I mean, I don't think I've ever heard anyone say anything so completely perfect in just three words. Yeah. Brilliant. So you study industrial design. What do you do when you graduate with that degree as a young woman in a very male-dominated field at a time when very few people really knew what industrial design actually was? Yeah, absolutely. And very few people knew what industrial design was in the United States, for sure, right? So in places like Germany and Italy, it was much more prevalent. Um, I like to, you know, tell the story. I think for the first 10 or 15 years of my career, I had to explain what I did, yeah. you know. So yeah. it's we've come, we've come a long way and the industry has come a long way. Um, following, you know, when I graduated from Purdue, um, I actually, I moved here to Boston uh, to work in the high-tech industry and um, Worked for a company uh, called Wang Laboratories. Wow. I don't know if you remember oh, of Wang course. Laboratories. Dr. Dr. Wang, the first word processor. Yeah, Dr. Wang, yeah. and um, you know, I uh, I designed the hardware, the look and feel of the computers. I, you know, it feels like a it feels like ancient history. It does it 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 feels like yesterday in many ways too. But it was you know, desktop computers were really starting to come to the fore, and design mattered, and so. Wang Laboratories and Digital Equipment, which I also um, spent six years at Wang and six years at Digital Equipment, uh, really were at the forefront of the way our computers, our keyboards, our monitors, and the look and feel of our products um, existed. Um, I'm really proud to say I was the first woman at Wang to receive a design patent. And at the time, uh, you know, I... I wanted to be recognized as a great designer, not specifically a great woman designer. There were many times in my career that I thought our work as women was done. Um, you know, I was wrong, right? So I think um, that's quite an honor and something that I'm, you know, proud to to support women in design today. I love it. And as someone who has been in the Boston high-tech community for my almost my entire career post McKinsey, you're bringing back some remarkable memories. And what I'm struck by is when, you know, when we think of design, we often think of IDEO and Steve Jobs and Apple. And quite honestly, I had no idea that they were using industrial design at companies as, as formative as digital and Wang. Yeah. Because Wang just didn't just design the word processor. They designed the hardware. It was a fully integrated appliance, right? I mean, it was a system. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And it was a company ahead of its time as well. It absolutely. And lasted for a very long time. They did. Yes. All right. So now you're done. So you spent 12 years in, in sort of the, the it's, it's a very exciting time in the 
the emergence of the personal computing industry and the unleashing of a whole new level of productivity. So what do you do for an encore? You want to design patent in, you know, these very um, iconic firms. What's next? Well, this is where it takes a bit of a personal spin. So um, I met my husband, Dieter, who also worked for digital equipment at the same time as I did. Um, And we met at... uh, through at, at Deck World and Deckville, which was very big um, customer moments for these companies, we met and um, got married and I moved to Germany. Um, so I left digital. I left, you know, a job that I absolutely loved, um, moved to Munich, Germany, and we started our own design company. Dieter's a mechanical engineer and I was an industrial designer. He was on the forefront of CAD. And we really felt like we could uh, do something, something together. And so we had our own company in um, Munich for many years. Wow. So the two of you were the principals of this industrial design firm. And what, what kind of clients were you working with? We had great, I, I love to think about the clients that we did. There was such diversity. And I think that um, that's part of what I love about industrial design and the path that I took is that we worked in the hardware um, area. We worked for Blaupunkt. That was oh, yeah. at the time a great audio company, car speakers. We worked for Mila that did vacuum cleaners. Uh, we worked for um, Hans Grohe that did um, faucets. And um, in the end, uh, at the before, before we made our next big move, uh, we were working for Braun, which was an absolute dream for me because uh, when I, we talked about the moment I graduated from college, I still remember, you know, saving to buy a Braun coffee maker because it was just so beautiful. So you've just described some of the great design icons of, of Germany and Central Europe. What a, what a wonderful roster of clients. Yeah, it was great. Wow. So, you're, so we're already, we're still fairly early into your career and you've already had just an amazing series of professional experiences. Yeah, it was, you know, it was it was a dream career, yeah. right? I mean, a, a dream opportunity at the time to be working with these um, German design icons, as you yeah. you so rightfully put it. Right. So then, um, what is it? You seem to have this habit of leaving <laughs> your dream jobs. It seems to be a a, a, a bit of a, a bit of a uh, an ongoing um, modus operandi for you. So so now you give up dream job number two. Where does that lead? Yeah, so, um, you know, I, it's funny because uh, I, I talked about this um, in a TED Talk um, that, that I was the kid that never wanted to leave home. You know, I was always happy where I was and I never wanted to leave home. And I remember many, many years later, my mom said to me, you know, for a kid who never wanted to leave home, you sure got around a lot. So... Yeah, so we're sitting in our studio in Munich and got a call um, from a headhunter uh, that was saying that a footwear and apparel brand in the United States was looking for someone uh, to lead uh, their efforts in color, trend, and materials. And this was a, a passion of mine. I like to call it a superpower. It's still something that I love. Um, and... Um, yeah, and it turned out it, it turned out to be Nike, and so we made the decision uh, to leave our home and and uh, family and friends in Munich, 
and moved to um, Portland, Oregon, where I spent 12 years. Wow. So you've lived in some remarkable places. And Portland, of course, is just absolutely beautiful country. So 12 years at this company in Beaverton, Oregon. Um, and again, you give this very well-received, very widely viewed TEDx talk at TEDx Valencia, which I will share uh, as we post and publish this podcast. I think it's very much worth looking at. And I love, and, and, and I can relate so much, Karen. I was at Hewlett Packard for the first five years of my career when they were the most admired company in America and considered the most innovative company in America. And as much as I loved every minute of it, I knew there was more, right? There was just, there was a yearning that there had, there was going to be something just a little bit more of a good fit. And then when I left McKinsey, I finally found my real passion, which was entrepreneurship. But I, I had to close some doors. And of course there was some trepidation, but that's what leads to having such a fulfilling life and a fulfilling career is the courage to leave home, as you so put it. Yeah. The woman that lived in Boston, Munich, and uh, Portland by this point. Yes, right. exactly. So, you know, uh, uh, so some time comes by and now you wind up at Reebok. And, and, and at this moment, we're going to pause for a sponsor break. And we're going to come back and we're going to do a deep dive into what drew you to Reebok and, and what your vision is for the future. Great. If you're enjoying this session and any of the previous episodes, find us on your favorite podcast platform and subscribe. Give us a five-star rating at the end, please. Your support is what keeps us in your ears every week. Thank you. All right. So we're back with Karen Reuter. And Karen, uh, we've just come to the point now where Karen has joined Reebok. And she'd already spent 12 years with that other shoe company in Beaverton, Oregon, which uh, I think says as much about her as you need to know in terms of her experience in the industry. So, you know, Karen, as, as I look at, um, you know, what I call a sneakerhead, um, you know, my son's a sneakerhead. My friend Hai Young sitting in the, uh, the listening room is definitely a sneakerhead. And I think about Turtle on Entourage. And, you know, just this incredible passion for sneakers. And now you're now coming back around into a athletic shoe, athletic wear company. What is it about this industry that has such a hold on you? Well, I think it goes back to my roots in industrial design, right? And there's this quote that that a designer out of the Stanford D School said about falling in love with the problem and not the solution. And I think with industrial design, you know, we really are looking to solve problems. And, you know, solving problems for athletes is an incredible challenge and incredibly motivating for me. I, you know, have always loved sports. Um, I was a pre-Title IX kid, so I wasn't able to compete in sports, but definitely um, was a was a lover of sport and in in exceptionally active and and love that whole industry. So, the opportunity to design product that not only looks great but works and helps people live an active and fit life is just something that continues to motivate me um, above and beyond, um, you know, pure fashion. Okay. So, you know, for those of our listeners who don't know the storied history of Reebok, right? Reebok's uh, predecessor company, J.W. Foster, was founded by a 14-year-old boy by the name of J.W. Foster in England. And uh, his innovation is famously depicted in the award-winning film, 
Chariots of Fire. Um, he hacked together the first ever running shoe spike. You actually see him using a hammer to put the spikes in the shoe. And the English national racing, uh, you know, track and field team won the gold that year. Uh, fast forward to the aerobics craze in the 1980s um, and the freestyle shoe became one of the most successful shoes in the history of the athletic footwear industry. And then a follow-on to that was the pump and Shaq O'Neal. I think he wears a 22, size 22 shoe. Yeah. <laughs> okay, which is, uh, there's a last with his name on it in the Maker Lab at Reebok's headquarters in downtown Boston. So, you know, Shaq was one of the, uh, you know, the world-class NBA uh, stars that sort of immortalized the pump. So there's been a series of innovations. But almost every athletic shoe company has had its ups and downs. And I think when you joined Reebok, right, it, it was in need of a renaissance. So can you share a little bit about what was it that you saw as an opportunity for you to impact? What vision did you have? What challenges did you feel that you were facing as you came back into this industry for a second go around? Yeah, so Reebok is, you know, one of the top three, top four recognizable brands and sport brands. Um, it has an authentic story and a rich legacy. And the archive at Reebok is the best, the best in the business as, as, as far as I, I'm concerned. Um, the brand itself really does um, capture the heart and mind of people. And I, I believe that, you know, this opportunity for relevance, right, for authenticity, um, I, I believe that brands play a really important role in our lives. And that's why I've, I've always designed for brands. And that um, need continues. And I think a brand like Reebok um, that is, you know, a competitor in this industry, um, and that has had, uh, an, uh, again, an authentic legacy in both the fitness and the fashion, which, you know, a lot of people refer to athleisure. Yes. I believe that um, a lot of brands need to stretch to play in both of those um, arenas. And Reebok doesn't have to, right? So from the beginning, we've, we've been relevant you know, on the field of play and on the runway. Okay. And so now when I look at, from what I've read is that, you know, under the leadership of your new CEO, it, it's a return to your fitness roots, right? So that seems to be an important part of the vision going forward. But at the same time, I see collaborations with Gal Gadot and Allen Iverson and uh, Miss um, uh, Beckham. Uh, Victoria. Victoria Beckham mm -hmm. and, and so many other celebrities from a whole range of fields. So, which is a very new part of, you know, the athletic wear and, and uh, shoe wear industry for someone like me. So, so what you're saying is those two pieces are really, uh, both of them are legitimately a long part of the heritage of Reebok. And your job was to kind of come in and rejuvenate both of those at the same time. I think not, not just rejuvenate, I think really support, right? Yeah. In ways that, um, you know, our, our opportunity is to, um, have people take notice of the great product um, that Reebok makes. Yeah. I mean, it is it is stellar, and yeah. um, it's it it yeah. Okay, 
So a part of this transition uh, just before you join is a transition from the beautiful suburban campus in Canton, Massachusetts, where I had the privilege of attending a wonderful number of wonderful Life is Good concerts on that wonderful land. Um, But there was a decision made to move to the Innovation District of Boston and to move into the design building, which is quite appropriate. As you think back about that and then your role in sort of helping with the interior design, which I understand has won some significant awards for the design, tell us a little bit about the importance of location and the space that you're working in to foster creativity and to energize the base of your employees. Yeah, so I joined the brand after the move to Boston, uh, after the decision was made. And so um, the the location at the Innovation and Design Center was part of uh, the attraction for me to join the brand. So the the office was open um, and and active. So I didn't play a part in that um, uh, that that part of it. What's really uh, important for us is is to be in the middle of things, right? It, it, we are at the intersection of culture uh, and being able to be part of this innovation mentality that's at the at the design center, be surrounded um, by companies who are um, challenging the status quo and in creating what's next is really uh, inspiring for us. I also think our location um, and our ability to, uh, you know, recruit and retain creative talent that clearly um, are living in our cities and are in our living close by. It was a, was a prime reason for me joining the brand. And also I think um, for others, as they look towards, um, towards the brand and, and the opportunities at Reebok today. So I had the privilege of sitting in this very room just about a week ago and interviewing uh, Dr. Jeffrey Schnapp, who uh, obviously is a colleague of your husband. And, and I refer to him as a polymath uh, and a Renaissance man. And I'm going to refer to you as a polymath as well. And, you know, the number of interests that you've described just in the short time we spend together is mind bending, right? So here you are, you love sports, you love cars, you love brands, you love materials, you love colors, you love industrial design, you love to travel <laughs> <laughs> and you love to leave your dream jobs, right? Yeah. Other than that, you know, um, I don't know what else to say at this point, but, but the reason I bring all this up is because you know, you're a woman of many interests, right? And so you just returned from a design jury in Germany, right? You shared with me that you're part of this MIT Solve community. Uh, community. Talk a little bit about what it is outside of Reebok that you do with whatever little spare time you have, just to help inform viewers on, or, or listeners on, you know, the entire totality of your of your set of interests. Yeah. So, you know, I'm... I'm a lover of all things design. So, you know, that that has always get it that always gets my interest whether it's mentoring young designers or teaching a class uh to to students at Wentworth Institute or at MIT in the executive education. I I love to do that. Um I I absolutely love cars. Uh we do love to travel and take road trips, um preferably in countries that don't have the rigid speed limits that some of us have. <laughs> um, and, you know, I really, I'm, a, I'm an avid reader. I, I love to read 
Um, I've probably always got, you know, three books um, going on, uh, something about business, something about innovation and in a great novel. Um, We love to cook. We love to spend time with friends. We enjoy that. I I love it. So, you know, as you as you pull all of these remarkably rich um, interests together, right? There's there's no question that, you know, as you said, you're a problem solver at the end of the day, right? And we're living in a unique time. Uh, from a climate crisis point of view, we're we're just walking out of the Davos event where everyone pledged allegiance to the importance of climate action. We saw BlackRock make a profoundly uh, significant announcement about re you know reconstituting their investment portfolio. You know, we've seen so many new announcements, right? And and yet, when I think about the apparel industry, I go back to Yvonne Chouinard and his visionary leadership of Patagonia. I mean, th- they have been about as authentic as any you know, any company in terms of being stewards for the climate that, that I can think of. But there's been a lot of more recent examples, right? And I know I'm, stu- I'm struck by Stella McCartney and, and her authenticity. But as, as Reebok digs more into the world of sustainable footwear and apparel, which we'll talk about the float, ride, grow in a moment, and we'll talk about the cotton plus corn shoe, where do you get your inspiration from in terms of sustainability leaders that are working on behalf of brands? You know, I I am inspired from a lot of different places. I think when we talk about um, inspiration from the industry that I'm in, in the footwear and apparel industry, I'm certainly inspired by our brother brand, Adidas. I think when you can do something at scale is when you're really starting to make a difference. I'm also inspired by some of the smaller companies that are really um, creating, I like to say, helping create the ingredients that we can use in our industry. So we can't do it all. We can't do it all ourselves. And I I think we have to get there together. A couple of companies um, that are inspiring me right now, you know, there's a, a, a company here in Boston called Air Inc., that is uh, capturing carbon uh, pollutants from the air and turning it into printing inks. Uh, There's um, a company called the Queen of Raw, who is recycling unused textiles and selling it back into the marketplace. So I think this idea of reuse and reduce is, is really important. And then I love to learn, right? So there's a company called Carbocrete, and I'm probably pronouncing it wrong, but I didn't realize what a pollutant cement was. Um, and they are really working to create, um, you know, a carbon negative cement free building material. And so, you know, you talk about this ability to have diverse experiences. I think, you know, diverse inspiration from a number of industries is, is really what's driving me and piques my curiosity. That's great. So now let's talk about your own efforts, right? So a few years ago, you launched, if I rem- if I recall the exact name, your cotton plus corn shoe line, right? Is that the way that is pronounced? Yeah, it yes. was it was cotton and corn. Yeah, and it was um it was a plant based lifestyle shoe, and we're very proud of it. It actually won an award from PETA, um, and it's a it's a lifestyle shoe, um. Yeah. Okay. And so, so what is, you know, when you think about all of the different types of shoes that are intended for so many different activities, this is just something you're going to hang out with on the weekend type of shoe. So it's not a performance shoe per se. It's just a, a weekend shoe or a casual shoe. 
Yes. And what's been the reaction from the market? It's great to get a PETA uh, award, but how about the consumer? What's been the reaction and, and uh, what kind of sales you know, a success have you seen with this shoe? Yeah, the cotton and corn shoe was extremely successful and we continue to keep it in our line today. And I think in this industry, that is the signal of something being successful is having longevity, right? right. So continuing into this, you know, third season and fourth season, right? Okay. Because we really are, uh, we're innovating on a fashion metabolism. Right. You know, the, the taste of our consumer changes quickly and we need to change quickly. And I think seeing a longevity of something like this that we continue to evolve and transform by adding new upper materials, better processes, um, is really a, a tribute to the quality of the cotton and corn shoe. That's great. Now, let's talk about the float ride grow because that is truly a breakthrough shoe. And from what I understand, um, you know, it, it's one thing to have what you call a lifestyle shoe, but it's a very, very different thing to actually have an athletic shoe that delivers performance with all of the trade-offs that are required to make it sustainable. And yet the float ride appears to be that shoe. And I know it's a fairly recently announced shoe. Can you describe for our listeners exactly the sort of the background of that shoe? Yeah. So, you know, we've been working on this for um, over six years, uh, really looking at creating a performance shoe, um, even more specifically a running shoe where the runner is really... um, the most, the most discerning um, critic, right? They're out there with their shoes and, and that's, that's their gear, right? So that's sort of the pinnacle of performance product. Um, and when we created the Forever Float Ride Grow, um, you know, now we're talking about certain things that, that seem easier now than, than others, right? So uh, a sustainable, uh, a plant-based upper, uh, which we've done uh, with eucalyptus, um, is probably a bit easier. Uh, it was really the foam that we had to create, not only that it would have the comfort, but it would have the performance criteria that they were used to in our float ride energy. And, you know, um, our float ride energy shoe um, has just worn one gear of the year from runner's world. So the standard was really high. So creating this performance-based running shoe and specifically the foam was really the big unlock for us. Okay. And is it unusual for a shoe to take six years to go from concept ideation to actually the ability to deliver? Is that an unusually long gestation period? Yeah. I think we're not talking about how long it takes to make a shoe, but how yeah. long it takes to make, um, how long it takes to make a significant difference right. in the ingredient of the shoe. And in this case, it was the foam. Okay. I think once you know it, once yeah. you unlock it, it starts to go faster. Yeah. So what? So as you think about the, you know, the the first corn and cotton based shoe, now the float ride grow, the industry seems, you know, your your corner of the world seems to be really stepping up, right? The company from Beaverton has made a number of announcements. Uh, right here in Boston, we have New Balance, um, mostly working with factory scraps and recycled stuff. Um, there's no, and, and, and as you said, your brother company is working very closely with Stella McCartney as one collaboration. Um, where does Reebok go from here? It seems like there's a bit of an arms race on sustainability in the world of fashion and athletic shoes. What, what can we expect to see in the, in the months and years ahead? So we have, 
um, two initiatives that we're really focused on. The first is called Recycled, and that is using recycled, what it's at, recycled materials. So we are looking to eliminate um, virgin polyester from our line 100% by 2024. And this is this is part of the business that is really where you are making a difference, where you're scaling. Um, and we're committed to that and, on, and well on our way. The second pillar is the idea of regrow and really focusing on plant-based materials. So this is regrow, is made from things that grow, made from natural products. You know, the, the ultimate is to create a truly biodegradable product. And, you know, this is, this is a challenge, but one that we're well on our way to meet. Um, if, if you wouldn't mind, I'd like to sort of share with you what it takes to become a, a certified biodegradable please, shoe. Please. And, you know, I yeah. might, I'm not the scientist, so I'm going to explain it in, a, in, a, in the way that, that really um, struck me is that you create this, you create the shoe um, and then you bury the shoe. And within a certain amount of time, that shoe has to, do, you know, biodegrade into the, into the earth. Once that happens, you, you plant a tomato in that earth. And as that plant grows and that tomato harvests, you test the tomato. Wow. And when that tomato has no signs of the product, wow. that's when it can truly be rated a biodegradable shoe. So it is a rigorous process and one that we're, we're committed to, and, and I would assume others are too. Fascinating. All right, so we're going to take one last break. And when we come back, we're just going to wrap up with a few questions. We spent quite a bit of time talking about sustainability and athletic performance. And I just want to wind, wrap up with uh, two lines of quick questions. One is the, all of these collaborations that are now a very significant part of the business and, and, and how that affects the way that you, you know, vision for the future. Um, and then maybe some advice for young women. Uh, who are thinking about entering into the field of design. Okay, so let's just take a quick break and we'll be back. This spot is reserved for you, our sponsors. If you'd like to be a part of the show and get your name to be associated with us and become a sponsor of a segment for the Disruptive Innovation Podcast, then reach out to Mike and Nikiso at Iwantin at DisruptiveInnovationPodcast.com or ThisIsCool at DisruptiveInnovationPodcast.com. Thank you. All right. So we're back from our break and we're going to wrap up this wonderful discussion with Karen Reuter of Reebok with just a few additional questions. So, you know, when I was a young boy, I loved to play basketball. And back in the day, I can remember going and buying a pair of, you know, Chuck Taylor Converse All-Stars for about 12 bucks. And they were a basketball shoe. It was not a hipster shoe at the time. Um, the sneaker world was so simple back then. And today it's just, it's exploded in creativity. And, and one of the more remarkable things, yes, everybody wanted to be like Mike or everybody wanted to buy the pump because Shaq wore the pump. But all of a sudden, the, the number of collaborations that you're having with all kinds of cultural icons and not just athletic icons, but singers and dancers and artists is remarkable to me. So... I'm assuming that a lot has changed from your early days in the industry. Can you talk a little bit about how all of that factors into the way that you execute on your vision and how do you identify individuals that align with the brand in a way that has authenticity? 
Yeah, the industry, the industry certainly has changed during during my time. You know, the importance of the the collaborations though is to really create a a connected and inclusive um culture for our brand. And so I think the first, you know, the first um step is to really understand <clears throat> is to really understand who you are as a brand. You know, we did that, right? As as when I came into to Reebok, it was really understanding what is the legacy, what is the DNA of this brand, and we were a brand that was born to defy, and we did this through bold, you know, boldly revealing ourselves. We didn't shy away from technology. We didn't shy away from from big shapes and big personalities, and and we like to amplify contrast and really understanding that as as a brand, right? And then this year we. We united under our, our Reebok Vector wordmark, right? Two of the most recognizable symbols in the industry, the, the drop our wordmark and the vector. Um, although we had, we had not used it um, as prevalent for the last few years, you know, it still had over 50% recognizability. Um, and it clearly is, I think, one of the probably, you know, top two to three uh, symbols in the business. So the first is to really understand who you are as a brand, right, because right. then who you choose to collaborate with really starts to not only, you know, what does my consumer care about, but what is that, what does my brand stand for? Right. And in the middle is how you find those perfect matches. And I think that's when they work the best is when you know who you are as a brand and you collaborate, right? So I think it's this idea that it's not as simple as falling in love with one brand. Right. Uh, today's consumer um, has has a lot of influences on them, and I think that it got it does go from the field of play to the runway, and we have to recognize that role for our brand um, and our industry. All right, so I'm sure you love all of your children equally, or more precisely, all of your uh-huh. all of your collaborators equally. But is there maybe an illustrative story of of one? Uh, partnership, one collaboration that sort of really embodies, you know, sort of the the ideal uh, alignment, the ideal partnership, the ideal outcome. You know, that's a that's a really that's a really hard question. Um, I, I think it would be it would be for me, um, you know, a, my personal is is a bit of a of a legacy uh, collaboration. That's with Alan Iverson. I mean, he was a game changer. He changed the way the game was played. He changed the way the athletes looked. He, and, and Reebok was that perfect brand with Allen. And so I think it's those moments that, you know, you look to repeat or that formula that looks to repeat. So for me, I, I think, you know, just off the top of my head yeah, answering. No, that's great. Yeah. That's great. And I, and I realize you still have a collaboration when right? he's been out of the NBA for a number of years, but still a very relevant cultural icon and still a collaborator with Reebok. Absolutely. A yeah. game changer. Okay. And then just let's wrap up by talking about, right, here you are, a pioneer. You're, you studied, first of all, you have to be told what industrial design is, and then you go running across the campus with your portfolio to, to become one. Um, but there's no doubt you you embody such passion for design. And, and design, of course, is a much more um, well-understood role today than it was uh, during its formative years when you were studying it, what what advice would you give to young designers today, to young women that want to, you know, come into the field and have even just emulate the kind of impact that you've had over the course of your career? You know, nothing would, would make me happier than to have um, more designers 
in this space, um, in the athletic footwear and apparel industry, in industrial design itself. You know, the skills that we possess, you know, I like to say the superpowers that we have are, you know, you need rigor and you need instinct and you need that ability to connect the dots. And I think some of the mentors I've had in my career, they've been, they've been the absolute best at that. And really understanding that where our businesses are today, the voices of women are really needed to propel, to propel change. Right. And I think that's, what's the most important to me is to bring those voices, to bring those voices in and then to bring them to the fore. Okay. So, so, you know, when I, as an perhaps uninformed observer, when I think of design, I think of empathy. And when I think of empathy, I certainly would think in general, women are more empathetic than men. Is the field of design still a male dominated industry today? I've got to believe it's changed, but is there still a fairly unfavorable ratio of, of male to female designers today? You know, realistically, yes. I th- I think the field of industrial design is is still male oriented. I do think that that's changing. I think you know it's it's up to you know it's certainly something for me around access to design, access to study, access to understand what the field of design um, brings and how women can play a big part in it is certainly very important. And I I do think that um, the women the young women designers today are are very very strong they bring exactly what's needed it's it's empathy but it's also you know trusting your gut and being able to connect the dots that i think uh, is a skill that that is second to none when i've seen some of the the young women designers who have joined our reebok brand that's great so let me wrap up right so one of the 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 last uh, points that we we covered right before the break was what I refer to as an arms race between the various uh, players in the athletic footwear and, and uh, athleisure industry, right? And, and I want to be very clear. Um, I've taught uh, social entrepreneurship for many, many years. And what I've always told my students in that field is you are not competitors, you are comrades in arms, right? You, you care deeply about making the world a better place and you want to do everything you can to collaborate with and support and enable anyone who's trying to solve this problem. So my point was only that it's a wonderful thing to see this incredible amount of focus and emphasis and investment on the part of the performance footwear and athleisure industry. I think that you probably all look across the aisle and you inspire one another. And there's nothing better than a little friendly competition to take your game to the next level. Anybody who's ever played sports knows that you always play better against a better opponent than a mediocre one. It's amazing what you can reach inside and do when you're inspired to do so. So all that being said, you know, obviously, as you said, you are a a culture that's built on sort of defying the current order. Um, What can we expect to see? What contribution might we expect to see from Reebok in the future as the woman that just not only leads the creative team, but the futures team. Any, any just big picture vision for us to leave us with as we wrap up our discussion today? Yeah, I think, you know, what's really exciting is, you know, we're, we're definitely moving forward, uh, innovating in what goes into our product, but we're also doing as much innovation into how we make our product and where we make our product. And you'll see a lot of, um, 
you know, new innovations coming in, just the art of shoemaking, the method of making. And that also has a footprint on our sustainability. And that is very, very exciting for us as a brand. So you will see us leaning um, very strongly in sustainability on the future side. But we're also going to make sure that, you know, the innovations that we pursue are are what our consumer expects from us. And, you know, when you're in this industry, you know, making a great shoe that fits wonderful and works and looks amazing uh, is how you're going to win. And knowing who your brand is, uh, is how you're going to win. And I think we're posed, poised to do all of that at Reebok. Sounds great. Well, listen, Karen, I can't thank you enough. I know how crazy busy your schedule is. I know you're just back from Europe. Thank you for taking an hour out of your day to join us. And Really appreciate the discussion. Thank you, Mike. This is Mike Grandinetti for the Disruptive Innovation Podcast. Thank you all for uh, taking the time to, to join Karen and I for our discussion. We'll look forward to talking to you again next week. 